I'm Noel Whitaker, and this is Win the Day with James Whitaker. You're listening to Win the Day with James Whitaker. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, this is the number one podcast to help you win the day every day. Here's your host, James Whitaker. Let's go! Hey winners, welcome back to the Win The Day Show. If this is your first time here, we sit down with some of the world's true change makers to give you all the tips, tools, and strategies to win the day every day. The quote for this episode comes from investment expert Noel Whitaker and says, sometimes an expensive lesson can be worth every penny. Sometimes an expensive lesson can be worth every penny. And if you've had some tough times in your life, but have been able to channel that into a source of strength, you'll know exactly how powerful that quote can be. Today's a bit of a special episode. Why, you ask? Because the person sitting right next to me is the source of inspiration for all of the things that I've been able to achieve in my 38 years on this planet. It is, in fact, my father, who since day one I've called Noel. I never really called him dad, so uh, it's fantastic to have Noel in the studio today. Uh, And it's actually my first time. My wife and I, uh, it's our first time back in Australia in the last two and a half years since COVID came on. So we thought we'd take the opportunity to get my dad in the studio to ask him a bunch of questions that I've wanted to know about. We can dive into his pretty amazing background and also embarrass him with a few of the things that we've got to put him on the spot for as well. And some of the things... Some of the reasons why he's such a big source of inspiration for me. I mean, he was able to create a very successful life for himself after coming from a very modest upbringing that we'll get into. He's got the most integrity out of anyone that I've ever seen. He's extremely motivated still to this day. And he's always thinking about what he can do to help the people who need it the most. So aside from that, I'm extremely grateful to have him and my mum in my corner as I've navigated the roller coaster journey of life that we all go through. Both of them have always kept me aware of my potential and guided me toward it, even when I went through some really tough times during my younger days and had forgotten my own potential and abilities along the way. They're also really generous people, but both recognize that the greatest gift that you can ever give someone is the ability to help themselves. A handout does nothing and in fact can do more harm than good, while the right lessons can give someone the skills and resilience that they can carry forever. If you're Australian, you probably know a little bit about Noel's professional background, but for those who don't know, I'll embarrass him right now with a few notable highlights. He's one of Australia's most prolific authors with 24 best-selling books, including Making Money Made Simple, which has sold more than 2 million copies on its own. He's been named Australian Investment Planner of the Year. He's been awarded the Australian Centenary Medal, and he was also made a member of the Order of Australia for his contributions to personal finance. He's also a regular contributor to newspapers and radio stations all around the country. Over the last 20 years, he and I have collaborated on so many different projects. Probably the most well-known one that a lot of you would have read is The Beginner's Guide to Wealth, which was a young person's guide to attitude, goals, and habits that we wrote together. And in Noel's spare time, which is usually fleeing the chaos of the 13 grandchildren that he has, (laughs) he loves to get his money's worth on the golf courses of Southeast Queensland. (laughs) But of course, his real career highlight is being featured as a special guest on the Win The Day podcast. And what can I say? We're very happy to have him here with us. In this episode, we're going to talk about so many different things. We're going to talk about what action is most important in helping helping you achieve financial freedom, how Noel was able to turn an unwanted manuscript into an international best-selling book, what motivates him to wake up earlier and work harder than other people, even at the latter stages of his career, and a whole lot more. 
Before we begin, remember that the right bit of inspiration can completely change the trajectory of someone's life. So if there's a friend or loved one out there who needs to hear this episode or could use some help to win the day, share it with them right now. And if you want access to episodes like this one as soon as they are released, stop what you're doing and hit the follow, hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening to or watching this podcast. And if you want to do me a favor, hit the like or five-star rating button on this podcast to help other people discover the show. All right, let's have some fun and let's win the day with my dad, Noel Whitaker. Noel, great to see you. It's about time we had you on the show. Thanks for being here. I'm honoured to be on your podcast. I've been a big fan for many years, James. <laughs> well, thanks for sitting through that embarrassing intro for you as well. <laughs> I thought it was all right. <laughs> to, uh, to kick things off, take us back to your younger days. Is there, give us a bit of a, a sense of what your childhood was like and the environment. Well, I was born on a farm, so I always had jobs to do. There were cows to milk and chooks to feed. You know, there was always jobs, I think. Uh, it was great exercise. It's a wonderful environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, my pet, my father was the manager. We didn't own the farm, so we weren't wealthy. We had a roof over our heads and we had, you know, pork to eat and meat and <laughs> stuff from the farm. So it was a, a modest upbringing, but we were never hungry. And that was a pig farm in south of Brisbane? At Kingston, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Um, what about the attitude to, I'm always curious about the, the mindset around household conversations and how much um, capability you had over your own growth and what you felt like. So what was that mindset around entrepreneurship growing up, knowing that eventually you would become someone who would have several of your own businesses? Well, there's a couple of things here. I mean, back in the, back in the day, you respected people. So my parents knew their place. They knew they were here, they weren't there. They spoke about lawyers and that sort of people as a higher rank and doctors. So I was always told that I couldn't rise too much, but just to keep my nose clean and be an honest, decent person, and I would, I would then achieve all that I had the, had the potential to be. So there was never any... Um did you feel comfortable going down the route of starting your own business or did you feel that was something that you would never was never really a possibility for you at a, at a young age? There was always a drive in me. Mm. I always dreamt that one day I'd have my own radio program. I was selling eggs to the teachers when I was about 12. At the age of 14, the owner of the farm backed me into a beekeeping enterprise. So we had 13 hives. I had my own honey brand. Uh, so I guess I've always been a little merchant. I think, I, I really think it's in you. Yeah. I think, I think it's in you. So you've had nine, you had nine lives in your career before you even started your your own financial planning business. Absolutely, <laughs> that was a long way down the long way down the track. That one. And I, I wish we could have busted out the beekeeper outfit just for just for this. <laughs> well, it's a bit like PPE gear. It's very hot. It's very uncomfortable. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. But I think the thing is that my father always said, "Get a safe, secure job." So when the depression comes, you won't be out of a job. So I joined the Bank of New South Wales because it was Australia's oldest business. Mm. When I joined the bank, my goal was to become a bank accountant, which was number two in a branch. And after six months in the bank, my goal was to become a manager. I suddenly saw that I wasn't as bad as I thought. (laughs) But I had fairly small goals. I mean, I was fairly inferior, I think. Uh, I went to high school with incredibly bright kids. I mean, I was number 10 in the class. Uh, number one, top Queensland. Number two, came third in Queensland. 
Uh, and I thought, therefore, I'm dumb and they're smart. I thought I must be too dumb to go to uni. So it didn't occur to me to go to uni because I thought I, I, I didn't think I'd have the brain power for it. I feel like that is the biggest problem with the educational system right now. It's too quick to put people in two buckets, smart or stupid. And that's, it's the people who perform very well academically mightn't be the ones who are very well suited to, to start their own business, just as people who perform poorly academic, academically, but acquire some real world expertise, whether that's getting along with people, public speaking, writing, uh, resilience, grit, all of those different attributes where it doesn't really matter how well they perform to, to a degree, obviously it can be helpful. But those are the people, poor academic students, can actually be ones who are very powerful um, and successful business leaders. On that note, I went to one teacher state school, primary, and the dunce of the class, we had seven, and Lionel was the dunce. So Lionel became a butcher. He got a butcher shop, the first bloke to own a Ford Mustang. You know, so he became a top butcher. And when I go to vocational guidance, oh, vocational guidance, we think you could be an ichthyologist which means you would study fish. I mean, <laughs> entrepreneurs weren't even thought of. You, you knew your place. Yeah. Unless you were very dumb <laughs> and you were forced to succeed. Yeah. I'm always really interested in what was that most defining moment for you in these sliding door moments where what if we didn't have this resource or never met this person or never attended this event that could have a considerable impact on our life? Uh, what was the moment for you when you realised and accepted, most importantly, that you were 100% in charge of your life and your own future? And how did things start to change for you once you had that realisation? Well, I was 32 and I read the book Think and Grow Rich. And the hands that picked it up were not the hands that put the book down. And I made two vows. One, I would promulgate, the, promulgate their principles for the rest of my life, and secondly, I'd start my own business within 100 days. So it took me 150 days to start the business, and I'm so proud that you are now the foremost authority on that book in the world. So I've really done a great job, I think, in promoting it. <laughs> yes, you, you have. Yeah. And, uh, obviously, Jim Rohn was a, a huge influence on me. Jim Rohn was a huge influence on, on you. What were the biggest, and, and Jim Rohn's mentor was, of course, Napoleon Hill. Um, Napoleon Hill, most famous for his 90, 30, 1937 book, Think and Grow Rich, the best-selling self-help book of all time. What were the biggest lessons that you took away from people like Jim and Napoleon, but not necessarily absorbed? What were the biggest lessons that you applied after having those two people as mentors through the written word? I think if we go back to the 1970s, I just got immersed in personal growth. It was Norman Vincent Peale and Dennis Waitley and Zig Ziglar and Jim Rohn, all those people. Uh, and, of course, they always push goals. I mean, goals is the big one. Um, and I just, for 10 years, I immersed myself in every self-help book I could find. Mm. And I just loved it. And I was, you know, and I always wished, I always feel sorry for people who are never going to read those books. Mm. I guess the most powerful thing about goals is that you often, many people for the first time, when you start doing goals, it's the first time that those people have really thought about what it is that they want. And it's, it's, reminds me of this, um, you know, you've had this print in your office at home for as long as I can yes. remember that says, I am in charge of my life. Yes. What, what is the backstory behind that, behind that um, print? That's dated 15th October 1985. I went to a five-day course. Vision Quest was the name, live-in course. 
And at that course, you had to say what they would say to you on your funeral. And like a bolt out of the blue, it came to me, my role on earth was to make people prosperous with education about finances. Mm. And since that happened, uh, I've stayed on that track ever since. Just ordinary people. So ordinary people are my constituency. What year was that, did you say? October 85. And is that 85? Is that your is that your handwriting? Did you write that or is that something they gave you? I handwrote it. Yeah. Because I was all over the place. I wanted to write a book. I talked about writing the book. And I remember they said out of that, go and write the book. Yeah. Because the book is a fascinating story. Because, mm. see, I started, the business I started was a real estate and building business. I met this builder and I figured, okay, I'd have been an accountant uh, I'd been a lawyer, I'd been a salesman, I had all these jobs, and I could bring in the accounting, the legal, and the sales. So we started a real estate agency and a uh, building company. And, uh, you know, all my builder mates' friends said, isn't it silly hooking up with this guy? And it was a Sunday. I remember this Sunday well because I'm in the office and there were no sales, the phone wasn't ringing, and we had a display village. We, those days, we'd buy a, a parcel of land and build homes on them. So we had a cul-de-sac in, in Roadstar, Brisbane, with about six homes in there, all waiting for sale. So I thought, I'll go and have a drive. And I drove out, and I saw a couple looking in the window. Had a chat, and I sold them that house. And I thought, right, you don't do business sitting on your bum in the office mm. waiting for the phone to ring. Mm. So next week, I had 80 core fleet signs made called Camden Homes Arrow and put them on every telegraph pole in, the, in about four square miles. And the street was chock full of people. So I actually started the first display village in Australia. <laughs> I love that. And a big, a big part of your story, something that I will never forget, is that hustle mentality of just getting off your ass and, and just getting it done. <laughs> Um, it's so it's so important. We'll talk about making money made simple yeah. shortly. Um, back to the the I am in charge of my life. I just yes. want to make sure that's really clear for people who are watching this on YouTube or listening to the audio version of this on the podcast. It is in in this large handwriting. I am in charge of my life. Now that never meant anything to me seeing that growing up because I always the way that not Noel isn't renowned. He's good at a lot of things. Handwriting is not one of them. <laughs> I always saw the G in charge as an yes. S. So I'm like, I am in charge of my life. I was like, what, what the hell does this mean? But I can really now, you know, I'm 38 years old. I can see how having I am in charge of my life there, just seeing that every single day. It's a bit like how in my um, home office in, in Los Angeles, it's I have that print that says action, the difference between having and wanting. Having something that you stare at, even if you're just not that consciously aware of it, I just feel like it's got to do something in terms of your mo- motivation and commitment each day. It also said, I am in charge of my life. Mm. And that means you control, you write the goals. Mm. And then think and grow rich at all the excuses. Mm. You know, it's too hard, I'm too dumb, it's too stupid, it's the wrong time. Uh, but once you write the goals, you become in charge of your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. Uh, I remember one time, many, many years ago, you and I were walking down Queen Street in Brisbane. You were doing a, a big speaking event coming up. And I said to you, do you still get nervous before a speech? 
And you said, yes, I still get nervous before a speech because the moment I don't get nervous is a no, is, is I will know that that's the time when I'm no longer passionate about it and I will stop speaking. Um, but that is really interesting because when you started off in your career, obviously the nerves are going to, to be there. Your 5,000th speech is going to feel different to your, your fifth speech. How did you push through the nerves early in your career once you started speaking to these larger audiences? I think what made me different is I always gave my boss my everything. Now, I joined the bank. The bank offered the staff to join Rostrum Club. I'm the only one who took up the offer. And I went to Rostrum and my knees would go like that for the first time. But then I'd get over it. Then the bank asked, and then I get on in the foreign exchange department. And they said, we need someone to go to staff training and lecture on foreign exchange. I was the only volunteer. It meant getting out of the office, being driven in the bank's nice big car, you know, uh, more public speaking, more, more educating people. The bank had a contest to see who could, who could get the most leads. Most people said rubbish. I made sure I won it. So I was always there, always going the extra mile, always, always. It's like that quote, um, is it Jim Rowan, Napoleon Hill? I forget, I forget who said it, but it's go the extra mile. Most people don't even go the first mile. Exactly. Yeah. It's, a, it's a great quote. You but again, it's, it's, it's goals that get you doing that. Yeah. See, goals make you. If One of my big tools is my do list. So I write down what I'm doing today and the goals are on that. Mm. Uh, and that makes you start. Yeah, they just nag away at you, don't they? Until you I get know. Oh, yeah. Done. yeah. Uh, you mentioned Making Money Made Simple earlier. We mentioned that in intro as well. It's the book that you wrote. 1987 it was released? 80, uh, March 87. March 87 it was released. Sold more than 2 million copies. Still a monster seller t- today. Um, you recently revised it as well. Uh, I believe at one stage, one in six Australian households had a copy of the book. What did you know that book publishers didn't know as they all rejected your manuscript when you first tried to get it published? Have you got time for a small story? Let's do it. Because I believe in the universe. And when we started the real estate business, I noticed the local hairdresser had a weekly column, 400 words, in the local throwaway paper called Clips or something. And I said, righto, I'll do a real estate column. And that got me in the habit of writing every week 400 words. Then I hired a PI bloke to get me a column in the Korea Mail, the newspaper. And that was there. And then ABC rang and said, look, we've seen you in the newspaper. Can you come and do some talkback? And I said, yes, well, but just prior to that, the Real Estate Institute had made an offer. They said, you're one of six people we think have potential as educators. If you pay the airfares, we'll take you to Canberra and Doug Maloof will teach you how to give a presentation. Three people said, haven't they got to hide? I'm not paying my fare. And three of us went down. Mm. And the big thing from Doug's presentation was, if you make a speech, they must take something away. There must be a handout. So when the ABC rang me, I thought, well, now, wait a minute. You do the stars in the paper with the star chart. We need a handout for this program. So we did a budget in the paper, and the ABC promoted the paper, and the paper promoted the ABC. Then, so that happened. Two days later, this guy rang me. We were 
up in Brisbane from Sydney. We heard you on the radio. We saw what's in the paper. The Daily Telegraph in Sydney wants to publish a money book. Would you do it? I said, yes. So I wrote the manuscript. Then it became advertorial. The whole thing failed, but I was left with the manuscript. Now, the radio program went to a talk back on 4BC of a, of a Saturday morning. And a woman rang up one fateful morning saying, no, you talk good stuff, you write good stuff, what's a book I can read? And I researched the bookshops and there was nothing. There was big, thick books, you know, of tiny print. There were how to buy a thousand homes in two weeks with nothing down, but there was nothing practical. So I decided I'd write the book. So I used the material I'd written for the file project that became the source of making money, money made simple. Then, of course, you procrastinate, got too hard, and my wife said, righto, you will start today. I said, it's Boxing Day, yes, start today. <laughs> now, a book's too big. A book's too big a goal. You can't write a book, but you can write a table of contents. That's the first goal. Second goal is list 30 contents. Now we write 2,000 words on each content, and there's your book. Halfway through, I got all the doubts all authors get. I pushed through, and January 87, it was finished. Took it to a couple of publishers. They said, ah, there's too many books about money. No, no way. And see, a manuscript's just a big, bulky Word document, you know. So uh, a guy I knew said, well, I know a publisher, Bullerong Press. If you take the risk, they, they will publish it. So I paid the production cost. And we, and we did 5,000 copies, and 5,000 copies went in a week. It became an overnight sensation. And the thing that really got them was, I said in that book, what no one had done before, if you pay your mortgage payments fortnightly and not monthly, you will save a fortune. Mm. Because 26 fortnights and 12 calendar months, you make an extra payment. And then it went everywhere. I mean, that it, it, by, it sold 100,000 copies in eight months, one in six households owned it. And that was the start of me becoming a household name, I think. Because at that stage, we started the financial advisory practice and, of course, that boosted the practice. Mm. So much to unpack there. Uh, I see so many people now posting videos talking about the mortgage repayment frequency as, as well. Now, <laughs> now everyone's obviously talking about it because it's yeah. so valuable. Yeah. Um, the unspoken truth about book publishers is that the publisher thinks the author is going to do all the hard yards to, to get it into as many hands as possible. Whereas the um, author thinks that, sorry, that the publisher thinks the author is going to do all the work and the author thinks the publisher is going to do all the work. What were some of the specific actions you took to be able to get that book into the hands of as many people as possible when it first came out? Well, a book has to be written, then typeset, and you need a cover, and the famous $20 note. Everyone knew the book with the $20 note. Mm. And many people said, you wrote, making money made easy. No, simple. Because easy is not simple, <laughs> uh, and, and you know, and that's, and then it needs to be publicised, and of course, it sort of takes off once it becomes in the top ten, you know, it, it just rolls on itself. Then has that momentum, and of course, then I was on TV, I was on radio, I'd fly to Sydney every week to do the Channel Ten on show in the morning, mm. you know, it just built on itself. Mm. That's great, and I know at the same time a bloke which made me cranky. He wrote a book on how to pay your mortgage off quicker. 
and it became a bestseller, and he gave up then. And see, I've never given up. I've been in the newspapers for 40 years, the only contributor who has never missed one column ever for holidays, Christmas, nothing, because I'm not letting anyone have a chance of getting my spot. <laughs> and I've got my foot on that spot, and that's how it is. <laughs> It's, there's a level of competitiveness that it takes to succeed. It's a big theme of what happens on the show. We have these um, really interesting, really successful people. And that competitive spirit, it's, it's very, very important. Um, every business can turbocharge its growth through having an, an asset that finds mainstream success and is able to help a lot of people. Making Money Made Simple was definitely a leverageable asset for you. Um, just like Dr. Michael Bruce, the sleep doctor, we've had him on the show twice. Yeah. He has his power of when quiz to talk about chronotype, when to identify your chronotype and when you should fall asleep. What are the, the biggest opportunities that a leverageable asset like Making Money Made Simple created for you and the business that you would go on to create? Well, people often say to me, I'd like to write a book. And I say, righto. You write a book, you want to make money or become famous or boost your business or because it's in you. Because you normally won't make money writing a book. You may become famous. Uh, if it's in you, great. But it's a great tool for your business. Because, see, I became the industry specialist. See, what you want to become is the leader like Dr. Bruce. He's the leader in sweep. I became the leader in personal finance. So once you choose to be the leader in your field, it makes it hard to compete. So I'm such a big believer in, in making sure that you have some content going out there to be able to communicate that you understand the problems that your audience faces. We're having a very authentic Australian experience. Here we have oh, we've fly, got a fly. A fly <laughs> around the studio. Remember um, that time on Channel 9 we had the crow? Yeah, that's right. I was on Channel 9 morning show and a crow came over the back. I thought, that's an awful omen. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It worked out all right, didn't it? Yeah. Um, where were we after that? We go. Oh, so got him. Finally, this is here. authentic. Even, yeah. the, even the Kelpie's looking in. We've got an Aussie blue, a blue Kelpie looking in the door. We've got Bluey looking in. I love it. Um, yes, I don't even know where we are after. Oh, that's right. I, I, I'm, it's, yeah. why it's, it's such a big thing, the work that I do, helping people in terms of business coaching, to be recognised as an authority in your industry. Yes. You can't sit on your ass doing nothing. You have to get out there. You've got to put content out there. You've got to show that you have done the hard yards where you can include case studies. People need to know that you can articulate the problem really well because if you can articulate the problem that they're facing better than they can, the more they'll assume that you have the best solution for that. They're just like, cool, I want the result. You're clearly the go-to person to help me get the result. What are the next steps? And on the condition that you can show them the next logical step, you've built up trust through the book or a podcast yes. or whatever it is that you have and you go from there. Yeah. It's the it's the power of legitimacy. Yeah, uh, you know, and and there's and, and you tell stories. As Jim Ryan said, Jesus Christ taught in parables. Mm. You tell stories, mm. uh, you know. And I now, I mean, I I now at least six or seven times a week get an email saying, thirty years ago I got your book. You know, it was life changing for me. If I if I give a speech now, there'll always be people in the audience or bring it along to be autographed. Mm. You know, uh, and that's the nicest thing, I think. Yeah, and it makes you, it makes you think about, obviously not 100% of people are going to, to reach out and do that. So I know times in my own career when I've thought, oh, wow, is anyone paying attention? Mm. And then the right message or the right thank you, whatever. It's like there are so many people out there. I had someone reach out to me once who say, 
I've been following you on social media for a long, long time. I just wanted to reach out and say, keep doing what you're doing. You're inspiring everyone. Mm. This is a person who never once liked or commented or, or as far oh, as yeah. I know, shared a post, but yes. people are listening. So you've got to stay persistent with what you're doing to be able to keep inspiring. There was a thing on that early newspaper column. For six months, nothing happened. Mm. But all of a sudden, after six months of every week, yeah. 400 words, people started to notice it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I make sure I'm in almost every newspaper. I get, I'll get something I read you in the Armadale Gazette or the Blue Mountains paper or the Tasmanian paper. I just get them. I don't know where they come from. <laughs> uh, so, you know, so I'm all over, the, uh, all over the country. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Uh, you and your business partner, Cheryl McNaught, shout out to Cheryl. I'm sure she's listening or, or watching this. Uh, you and Cheryl seem to complement each other so well when you had your financial planning company for, for 30 years. What are the secrets to a, a successful business partnership? I think it's like a marriage. You need a commitment. Because at some stage, a marriage or business, your partner will drive you up the wall. <laughs> but, you know, you've got, to, you've got to stay in there. I mean, we had different strengths. She was detail-minded. She did the administration. She hired the staff. You know, you know I was the rainmaker. I'm very happy. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm not a detail person. I hate hiring staff. I hate doing the books. You know, uh, I'm the rainmaker. And, and I think we, we, and, and we both knew that. Mm. Many times people said to me, well, you know, I don't think it's fair you're half and half because you're the visible one. I said, yeah, but you don't see what she's, what she's doing, which is, which is behind the scenes. Yeah. It's, it's a lot like um, mothers who are, who are looking after the kids because yeah. they have to in terms of breastfeeding and all of those different mm. things. Having, you know, you've seen it. We've been in Australia now for a month and you've, you've seen the, the stuff that, that's required, obviously, with young kids. It's, oh, um, God, tell me about it. Yeah, it's a lot, a lot of work for behind the scenes. So, yeah, but, uh, but, but in the business and a marriage, you must have common values and goals. Mm. You know, we both wanted to build the business. You know, my wife and I both had the same values. Mm. Uh, and that helps you stay together, Yeah, you know. Yeah. But there will be times when you'll clash, and that's <laughs> totally normal. In 2007, 15 years ago now, you and Cheryl decided to sell the business. It had been a major part of your lives for 30 years. When did you know it was time to move on, and how did you prepare the business for the sale? Well, I think then I was about 65, and you realise that you can't be the rainmaker forever. And it's nice to harvest some wealth out of it because, you know, business is always cash flow and you're finding about. And uh, that's when you learn about selling a business because the first thing, people will want to come and look at your business. Now, they sign a non-disclosure document, but, you know, if your major competition is going through your books, you know, mm. and then you get silly offers then they want to offer you shares. And, and my wife said, we are not taking shares. We are taking cash. And Cheryl said the same thing, you know. And then we got a, a good offer from HBOS, which we liked. They were, they were nice people. But now they never give you the full freight. We got two-thirds in cash and one-sixth payable twice over two years, provided the business maintained its profitability. Well, as Cheryl said, well, what if you both stuff it up? You're going to take our business, walk in, change everything and stuff it up. Well, they said, well, why would we do that? Well, how about a clause that no change without our consent? They said, you've got to be joking, come on. But in the end, after look, we had days of negotiations, like 12-hour meetings. But we eventually came to it. 
and it worked well. Mm. Uh, it was a year before the GFC, so it worked extremely well. <laughs> and interesting, we were bought by HBOS, a, a Scotland's oldest bank. HBOS printed the Scottish money. I would have taken shares. They were £50 then. My wife and Cheryl said, no, no shares. In the GFC, HBOS shares fell to 50 cents or something. One of their staff members, who was 50-something, had worked there all that time. All her money was in HBOS shares. She lost a whole retirement fund. Wow. So I think HBOS is gone. Good lesson about the bird in the hand. Absolutely. I mean, if you're taking shares, you're punting. We'll be back with the show shortly. If you're a business owner, I want to share the one thing that's going to get you out of the daily grind and into building a business that you can scale faster than anything else. It's called a podcast, just like the one you're listening to right now. But most business owners who have a podcast don't have the right plan. They feel like they're on a hamster wheel of constant deadlines and haven't even come close to tapping into the potential that the podcast will give their business. So what can you do? Well, I've put together a free resource just for you. It's called the 10 biggest mistakes business owners make with their podcast. It'll show you everything you need to do to start getting a massive ROI from your podcast so you can help a lot more people get recognized as the authority in your industry and scale your business faster than ever. To download your free copy of the 10 biggest mistakes business owners make with their podcast, go to mistakes.wearepodcast.com or click the link in the show notes. Let's get you scaling your business once and for all. Now, back to the show. Uh, you and I must give a shout out to my mum, your wife, Geraldine. She's literally the kindest and most compassionate person I've ever met. Having her as a mum is about the greatest blessing I could possibly imagine and something I'm grateful for every well, I day. I say that as a wife as well, of course. I know, I know. How did, uh, question for you, how did her presence in your life change things for you? Well, I think she's a giver, as you know. You know, she's a wonderful presence. We share values. Uh, she's, she eventually, went, she was an air hostess, went back and became a psychologist. You know, she's smart and she's nice. And she's got a good business sense. You know, so I think it was just a lucky choice. Mm. Mm. And you describe it as your good luck charm, don't you? I do, my good luck charm. Yes. Well, so I got divorced at 38, mm. met her six weeks later. That's the universe. And we got engaged eight weeks after that. And it's been, you know, 42 years later. That's why you weren't too popular with the new in-laws at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Someone 38, marri- a divorced man 38, marrying <laughs> our 25-year-old treasure was not what they wanted for. Yeah, the failed beekeeper. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. What about having kids? How did that change? <laughs> you know, certainly you've seen our kids have, have changed me. I've certainly got a few more grey hairs in the last three years. How did it change things for you? Well, I was 41 when the first child was born. You can't describe it. To me, you see the world in colour. To see the world through a child, you know, to me there's no experience like having kids. Mm. Again, they can drive you mad. (laughs) Well, you were one of them and they said you you always have the the pride, the joy and the challenge. Well, of course, pride, joy and challenge, they can, the roles can vary a bit, you know. But, oh, no, having kids, that's the... That's the biggest thing in my life. Yeah, it's interesting perspective, isn't it? Oh, yeah. What about now that you, I bet you never thought you'd have 13 grandchildren? No. You've got three kids and 13 grandchildren. Well, I didn't expect the oldest to have seven kids. So yes. 
I don't you've, think better, yeah. I know you've only contributed two of those. Yeah, I know. I'm definitely falling short. I've contributed two <laughs> out of 13. And I, I feel like I haven't put my weight and I have no intention of, of, uh, of catching up to Mark. I don't think you need seven. <laughs> so with grandchildren, it's different than your own kids. It's, it's a bit more hands-off. You've got a lot more life experience and, and as well. Um, how has spending that time with your, you know, obviously you spend a lot of time with the grandchildren. You take them out to golf and meals and at home yeah. and all these different things. How has spending all that time with the grandchildren changed your perspective? I think it's fun to see see life through their eyes, I think. And God, they can eat. <laughs> I can't believe how much they can eat, you know. Uh, but it's just wonderful to see it. Yeah. And it's great to see that they've all got good parents who, who encourage them. Mm. See, 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 to me, it, it's, about, it's about personal growth, mm. you know, and uh, I think it's great. Mm. And it's interesting to see the, the different... Um, mindsets and, and attitudes like they're all so unique as well which is which is crazy um your firstborn my brother has seven kids seven kids who are who are all quite different um which of course you know brings us into that conversation of human potential which is something that's been your life's work it's been my yes. life's work um the show is called win the day why do some people who have all the advantages the best education any money and resources and connections they could possibly want end up with their lives a complete shambles, often even take their own lives, yep. whereas other people who have nothing and fight for absolutely everything they get end up being so successful. Why is there often that disparity between the two? The first think and grow rich principle is desire. Now, I can't create that. If you don't have desire, I cannot give it to you. I've always had desire. I've still got desire. You know, I still want to do it, you know. Uh, and some people, and I test people, if I see someone I think's good, I give them a book. You know, it might be a tradie, might be a waiter, people I meet, you know, I just give them a book. A couple of months later, how's the book going? Well, now, ah, oh, haven't started yet. And then you know there's no desire. Yeah. Other people are saying, yes, I'm ready, it's going well, da-da-da-da-da, you know. Uh, so... I do not know how to how to give desire to people who just don't care. Other people read that same book, the exact same resource, the exact same words, 30 years later, $10 million. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. And it can be frustrating, can't it? Like it's, it used to be really frustrating for me. Now I've sort of stopped taking ownership of other people's inaction and been like, you know what, I'm just going to work exclusively with the people who want the help rather than trying to help everyone who needs the help. Well, you just get burnt out in the process if you do that. Yes, and I think the great one in business, you hire attitude and teach skills. Mm. You cannot change attitude. Yeah, well said. Uh, you're working on a new book now about 10 Steps to Financial Freedom for yes. Young People. Um, something I love about you is, you know, you're always working on, on new projects. Uh, if you had to narrow it down to the most important step for someone to achieve financial freedom, what would it, what would it be? What comes to mind? Okay. One, you must spend less than you earn. It's very simple. You spend less than you earn. Now there's a surplus. You invest the surplus at the same time, you improve your skills by education, by self-education. As your skills base grows, your income grows, and you're on your way. 80% of people have no interest in improving their skills. 80% of people fall for buy now, pay later, credit cards. They're always behind. Now, if you're in debt every payday, you never get ahead of the game because you need to create the capital base. Now, as Jeff Olson said in that wonderful book, The Slight Edge, it's the small things. Compound interest is very slow to start. Mm. 
but gee, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. So I think, you know, you must, A, not spend everything. You must start the capital base. Mm -hmm. It'll grow faster and faster, and you improve your skills and add to it. Mm. Part of all you earn is yours to keep, as they say, the richest man in Babylon. That was written in 1926. Yeah. Yeah. And on this show and speeches, I often talk about what I call the law of increasing value, um, being that the more valuable you become, the more value you have to offer others. So as you can offer value to people who are more and more influential, they're going to turn around and say, what can I do to help you? And that's where you can use resourcefulness and relationships to get anything you, you Absolutely. Want. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, there's a lot of talk, you know, a lot of elections and things coming up. It seems like we're always on the cusp of, of an election cycle. It's certainly big news in Australia at the moment. 2024 is probably going to destroy America on the on the way. It's, it's been oh, an interesting, an interesting time. God. If you could make one change to government policy to better incentivize people to take ownership of their finances or, or finance more broadly, what, what would it be? I know I'm putting you on the spot here a bit with that one. No, the government has effectively wiped out the advice industry. Because there was a few shonky advice, only a few. You mean the, uh, the financial advice? Advisors. Yep. Yeah. And the government said, righto, we'll send them all back to uni. So top people, age 50 and 60, they made them go back to uni and some didn't want to, to do a course they didn't need. I mean, you, you, you don't send your doctor back to uni or your lawyer back to uni. They then said, if someone comes for advice, you must produce a 100-page document so basically, a financial advisor has to charge five thousand dollars. They got to pass the costs on to the to client. all the compliance costs. Yeah, you know. So if someone's got twenty or thirty grand, what the hell do they do? Mm. You know, mm. and that's the problem. You've written twenty-four books. Number twenty-five is coming out very soon, as we just mentioned. Yes. What what drives you? What what motivates you to, to get up before you know you're up a lot earlier than, than I am. You're, you're up before I, I am up a lot later than you. Let me know. I know that. I know that. I know that. <laughs> um, you're up. You seem to thrive on being awake before anyone else and, and going the extra mile and doing the work. What motivates you to, to do that, even at this stage of your career? Well, having heard your sleep doctor tape, <laughs> I'm the early one. I think it's the line, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I wake up early and I'm happy to be sound asleep at ten at night. <laughs> Uh, and I just love what I do. I'm always there's so much going on. It's just in this in this financial world. And now it's I'm more with older people, so it's estate planning, superannuation, tax. You know, it's just a non-stop thing. And I get about a, oh, 50 emails a week with questions, and the questions tell me what what people need to hear. Yeah, it's a great learning experience. Yeah, it's part of that big focus that you have of, of being of service, which is oh which yeah. is so great as well. Because I still want to be the specialist. Mm. Yeah, I don't want anyone getting my place. <laughs> we got some questions from the Win the Day community. Right if you on. want to uh, submit some questions to uh, guests that we have coming up on the podcast and see who those are, join the Win the Day group on Facebook. We'll include a link to that in the show notes. And for any of those questions, you can comment directly in the Facebook group or you can email those through to us at info at jameswit.com as audio messages or as written emails. Got a question from Robin. How do we help parents plan for retirement age? Is it best to interfere or to let them live their own lives and deal with the consequences? Well, I think there's a bit of both here. It's, it's well known the more transparent the family finances, the less chance of strife later. So I think that the more involved you can be with your parents and, you know, and then talk about things. I mean, there's, there's my book on retirement. It's 430 words, uh, 430 pages. Uh, I think you get involved with your parents discuss things with them, 
uh, because a lot of parents are terrified of nursing home costs. Mm. Uh, a lot of parents say, look, a lot of kids will say, parents, spend it. We don't want your money. Uh, you know, I, I believe in the bank of mum and dad. I think if parents can give their kids a hand up, not a handout, that's great. So I think the more you can talk with them and see what they're worried about, because most retirees don't know what they don't know. And if you make a mistake when you're retired, it's going to be a couple of hundred grand at least is the cost of that. Yeah. Yeah, you're spot on the right bit of advice now. A lot of people, I feel like, are stuck in that ignorance is bliss mentality. They're like, look, I'm not even going to think about it. I'm just going to keep living my life. Oh, yeah. And then, sure enough, you're at the point when you wish you had done something 20 years ago. You can't do it. Yeah, and it's now the the government expects people to use the equity in their home, which can be a reverse mortgage, where you take out a mortgage, on the oldies take out a mortgage, and it grows because there's no payments of principal or interest. It just grows, mm. which means it'll double every 10 years. Mm. If the kids paid the I – and mean, that means there's less for the kids. Mm. If the kids paid the interest, the debt wouldn't change. Mm. They're the kind of things to talk about. We've got a question from Tasha. What's the best financial tip for a startup business? Startup business – I think focus on profits, not sales. So many people say, but turnover is half a mil. So I don't care how much you're making. Mm. So I think don't confuse turnover and profit. Mm. That's extremely dangerous. And make sure you keep good books. Yeah, love it. Simple, great. Um, and final question from the Win the Day community. We've got Danny who asked, when should someone start salary sacrificing into super? Superannuation, that is, for people in America, 401k. 401k. Yeah, basically, the thing about look, every investment decision has got good points and bad points. Super's great because you can have pre-tax dollars and it's in a low-tax area, but you can't touch it till you're 60. So if you're 20, why would you lock up money for 40 years? Uh, salary sacrifice was big when you couldn't get a tax deduction for your own contributions, but now you can but I think people, I think going into superannuation 35, 40 upwards is great. And salary sacrifice comes out and you don't miss it. And I think for most people, it's more effective to salary sacrifice, which means you pay your money every fortnight and you, and you, don't, try and, and you don't try to find some big, big lump sum. Mm. Yeah. Uh, we've got a few more questions now before we get into the win the day rocket round, which I know you're really looking forward to. Thanks. Um, what, what brings you the most joy in life today? Apart from having your son back from America. Well, the most joy in life today, well, there's so many things. You know, I love walking on the beach. I love sitting in the bed with my wife of a morning with a cup of tea in the newspaper. I'm happy you clarified cup of tea in newspapers. A cup of tea in the newspapers. <laughs> <laughs> cup of tea in the newspapers. Uh, I love being with the kids. I think the great thing is that it doesn't cost money, you know. Uh, I'd rather have. I'd rather. I'm a simple eater. I'd much rather have a, a home cooked meal than a Mitchell and Three. You know, uh, <laughs> we, story, we've got mate. some stories about that one, have we? What you know? Oh no! Once in uh, in London, we walked into a restaurant that we we found out once we sat down, and Noel was the only one given a menu that had the prices on it, and uh, we found out uh, we didn't realise it was a three star Michelin restaurant. Me. We bailed halfway through before we'd even gotten out or before we'd even <laughs> ordered the food to go to a cheaper restaurant down the road because he refuses to eat at Michelin restaurants because the portions are very small and obviously very, very expensive and just the experiences aren't the same, are they? They're boring. I would rather be sitting in the street. One of our best meals was at Cassis and 
Bilba Bay, sitting in castles, looking at the Mediterranean, just sitting in an outside table, mm. that sort of stuff. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm often asked what the best advice I get from my parents is, and I feel like I'll mm. answer that now for anyone who wants to know that. From my mum, I say you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar, Brilliant. something she's often said to me. And from you, it's handsome is as handsome does. <laughs> I want to turn the tables on that. What's the best bit of advice that you've learned from me, if anything? You always made me prepare for presentations because I'm a wing it guy. But, you know, uh, you always made me prepare and you helped me prepare. You'd say your, your PowerPoint slides are crap. <laughs> you would take them back and rejig them for me, <laughs> you know. So you were very big on keeping me on track. Hmm. And, I, and I thank you for that. <laughs> My pleasure. Uh, when your time on this earth comes to an end, as it does for all of us, what do you want to be remembered for? I like the apple and the seeds. I'd like to think that the education I've given people has gone through to their kids and their grandkids and their great-grandkids. You know, I'm, I'm hoping uh, and any philanthropic, philanthropic things I do, it's all about do, doing that. Mm, helping create that generational wealth for families yes. that before. Especially uh, kids of violent families. Mm. Uh, I contribute to one that gives them school books. Mm. I, just, I, I give charities for kids, for poor kids, mm. you know. Mm. Yeah. Um, second last question. On your best day, what's an affirmation that you would write on a card that you could show yourself on your worst day? This too will pass. Because, mm. you know, it's a bad day, but it's, it's the same as golf, right? It was a terrible hole, <laughs> but there's another hole coming up and I might do better. I've never seen you have a terrible hole on the golf course. See, I <laughs> 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 Let's now get into the win the day rocket round. Ten questions for some fairly quick answers. You okay. This one, Noel? Yes. Number one, what quote inspires you the most? Would it be this two shall pass or something else? Is it, what I think most? Jim Rohn, don't wish it was easier, wish that you were better. Mm. Again, it, it's focusing on self-improvement. Mm. Love it. Number two, oh, I know the answer to this one. <laughs> Morning coffee or evening wine? Both. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, what's one bit of advice you would give your 18-year-old self? I think it would be have faith in yourself, hang in there, and trust the universe. Number four, what book do you gift the most? Well, it depends on the recipient. It could be Making Money Made Simple or our book, Beginner's Guide to Wealth, or the retirement book. It, it, it depends on, on, the, on the person totally. Mm. One of my own, though. <laughs> Number five, was there a vulnerability you once hid within that became your superpower? I was a very insecure kid. I always thought I was the worst at everything. Uh, and I think one of the things that drives me is the fact that I'm still fighting that, mm. you know? They always say the poor kid never forgets it. <laughs> Love it. Oh, yeah. Number six, what's one thing you've learned about failure? Oh, as every one of your guests say, it, it's, the, it's the best learning experience. Mm. <laughs> Number seven, if you could sit on a park bench and have a conversation with someone alive or dead, who would it be? It's got to be my dad and my grandfather because my grandfather founded the Butter Factory at Kingston. <laughs> my father was the biggest authority on pigs in Australia. Dad died young and my grandfather, I never spoke too much. <laughs> I would love to communicate and hear their stories. Mm, sure. I'd love to do with them what, what you're doing with me. Mm, mm. <laughs> uh, number eight, what tool or resource best helps you run your life or your business? The do list. And, and as Stephen Kotler said in that book, uh, The Art of Impossible, you write it down 
and you tick it off. Mm. And that really, you know, that works for me because I've got paper columns that's deadlines. Mm. And the hardest thing to, with a column is to start. Mm. Say, righto, this is the job. For the next half hour, I'll work on this column. Mm. It works every time. Number nine, share one thing on your bucket list. I know you've been able to do a lot. That's a tough one, isn't mm. it? I think over COVID, the last two years sort of changed his perspective on things. Sometimes it's like the bucket list, which a lot of people associate with traveling to an exotic place. You actually realize that you cherish the moments that you have at home more than that. Yes, I mean, uh, I've almost done most things. You know, I'm, I'm not being arrogant to say that, but I mean, um, I wanted to fly a helicopter, and my wife said, no, you, no, you won't fly a helicopter. So I crossed that one off. <laughs> <laughs> Um, to be said, there's nothing specific. Mm, mm. Uh, and final question, number 10, what's one thing you do to win the day? I lie in bed and I think about you and I say, what do I do to win the day? And I think what I write on the do list. <laughs> Love it. Well, there are a bunch of ways to connect with Noel and we'll link to all of these in the show notes. You can follow him on Facebook at Noel Witt. You can visit his website, noelwhitaker.com.au and grab a copy of his book, Making Money Made Simple, which has recently been uh, rewritten, which is a fantastic read. Again, all of that and more will be linked in the show notes. Dad, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a highlight. It's an honor. I hope you enjoyed that interview. As you heard, our guests love to hear positive feedback no matter where they're at in their careers. So share a comment on the YouTube version of this episode with your favorite takeaway so our guests know they made a difference in your life today. If you're a business owner and want a copy of the 10 biggest mistakes business owners make with their podcast, go to mistakes.wearepodcast.com or click the link in the show notes. It's a free download and we'll show you everything you need to do to start getting a massive ROI from your podcast so you can help a lot more people, get recognized as the authority in your industry and scale your business faster than ever. And if you haven't already, hit the subscribe or follow button so you can get access to episodes like this one as soon as they are released. The Win The Day podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Finally, the right bit of inspiration can completely change the trajectory of someone's life. So if there's a friend or loved one out there who needs to hear this episode or could use some help to win the day, share it with them right now. That's all for this episode. Get out there and win the day. Until next time, onwards and upwards, always.